What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com amazing to start your springtime adventure. And, and it's interesting because it's right at the time when all of these countries have actually shifted right in terms of national politics. But the articulation in the grassroots movement has has reached a lot of these women and their response is, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's not marketable. It's 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 a public good. This is what you say. You have a national team. The government is, is supporting the men's side. And equally, we should we should be able to capture some of those resources. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to Brenda Elzey, an associate professor of history at Hofstra University and the co-host of the amazing sports and feminism podcast, Burn It All Down. We're talking to Brenda about an article that she just wrote for The Guardian called From the Ashes, South American Women Rise Again for the Copa America Femenina. It's an amazing article about the way players in Brazil, Chile, and Argentina are rescuing women's football from oblivion. Also, I've got some choice words about Eric Reed, the free agent safety, and why he is not for sale. I got Just Stand Up, Just Sit Your Ass Down awards, and I've got all my NBA playoff predictions. Yes, we are actually going to talk sports. I'm also going to hand out my postseason NBA awards. Oh my goodness, I'm sure basketball Twitter is going to flock to this week's podcast. But before we get to all of that, let's talk to Brenda Elsey. So, Brenda, before the players started their organizing effort, can you give us a sense of what the women's soccer federations looked like in Brazil, Chile, and Argentina? In 2014, when the last tournament, uh, the last Copa America was held, which is the only time you really get to see these federations come out, it looked like there was some momentum, some kind of organizing in all of those places. Uh, the president of the federation at that time in Chile, Harold Maine Nichols, was really interested in developing the women's game for a while. He's since been displaced. Um, Brazil has such a depth of talent that it's they can maybe get by without much support sometimes. 
and uh, Argentina was was a disaster as it is today. So in 2014, you saw them go to Ecuador. There was some momentum around them at that time, and then between then and now, it was a complete disaster. The majority of teams in Comebol, six out of ten, some months seven out of ten, were considered inactive by FIFA. Mm. And how have the players organized to turn this around? And how much have they turned this around? I think it's amazing how much they've turned it around. This tournament so far has been better than any that we've seen. They've gotten, just by their own efforts, they've gotten television, a television station in Chile for the first time to cover the tournament entirely. The stadium attendance is is record-breaking, and they've done it through really political organizing, collective political organizing in different ways. Uh, The Chileans have formed a union. Uh, this this happened all around 2015-2016 when during the whole FIFA scandals and everything that was happening at that time this is when they really fell just in complete disarray meaning their federations weren't even answering invitations so they might have been invited by you know the Colombian federation but the Chilean women didn't even know they didn't have coaches they didn't have anything assigned and so around then they really started realizing, hey, we are after all this work after because most of them have gone through the system as youth players. And Mm -hmm. they saw, you know, their rankings go from 15, 16 to zero at the end of 130. So they really got together around 2015, 16, and they've done it in different ways. But collectively, the Chileans, like I said, they started a union. The Argentines went on strike. And the Brazilians had a combination of collective letter writing and sadly, and this is so painful, retirements. Mm. Now, Brazil, Chile, and Argentina, I don't need to tell you this, you know, three very different countries in every, in so many different respects. Um, (laughs) Has this been the sort of thing where this kind of organizing has happened on parallel lines because of just facing similar circumstances? Or have there been interactions between the players in these different countries, efforts to build solidarity, efforts to build on the work that each other have done? No, this has happened in isolation from one another, but in connection to a larger feminist revitalization that's happened over the last two years continentally. So more than anything, it's not really about soccer so much as they've been connected in different ways to transnational feminism, the Ni Una Menos movement in Argentina in particular, which has spread across the continent. It's a protest against gender violence, but it's taken on a much bigger Uh, platform since it first started uh, in terms of understanding gendered violence as not only physical. And uh, you saw this on March 8th, just huge mobilizations in Buenos Aires and Santiago and in Rio, Sao Paulo. Uh, So so they're connected in that way. But as of now, they have not they've not gotten together as women's soccer players. And, and we're trying really hard to make that happen following the cup. A lot of people are, are trying to work and do grant writing and things like that, but it's really difficult. They don't have the funds to do that. And have the women's soccer uh, federations in Brazil, Chile, Argentina, do you know if they've received support from 
non-sporting organizations, civil society organizations, leftist groups, women's groups who are involved in the mobilizations, anything of that nature, are they connected to these larger struggles in a way that's more than just uh, ideological or the political vibe of the moment, but in terms of concrete organizing? Yeah, they're, they're just starting now. Um, that's something that first they needed their own organizations to be able to reach out. Mm-hmm. And, and now that, for example, the Chilean Players Union exists, they've formed a relationship with the Men's Players Union, and they're both in contact with labor unions, that umbrella organization. So it's, it's happening right now, but it's happening um, just now, just now. Fantastic. And you, you reference in your piece, and it's a terrific piece, I'll say the name of it again, uh, From the Ashes, South American Women Rise Again for the Copa America Femenina. And I wanted to ask you, you reference in the piece uh, neoliberalism. And could you give us, first of all, just a sense of how you define neoliberalism and the intersection of neoliberalism with this effort by the women to organize themselves to claim or reclaim soccer in their country? So the way in which it gets translated into women's soccer is that neoliberalism claims that the market determines what's valuable and that big state institutions don't owe these national teams anything. That public good is, is defined by private enterprise. And the women, in this case, it's really interesting because in the 90s, you saw a lot of women without really a response to this. It was it was kind of like, well, if you're not marketable, then you're not good. If you if you were able to make money, if you could objectify yourself, then you're worth supporting. You know, you'll you'll make it on your own. And you've seen a kind of pushback against that. And, and it's interesting because it's right at the time when all of these countries have actually shifted right in terms of national politics. But the articulation in the grassroots movement has has reached a lot of these women and their response is, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's not marketable. It's 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 a public good. This is what you say. You have a national team. The government is is supporting the men's side. And equally, we should we should be able to capture some of those resources. Has the shift right um, provoked or inspired these movements, the, the realization that they're going to need to be organizing on a grassroots level if they're going to get push these issues forward? It's hard to say. I, I mean, I would like to say yes. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would like to be hopeful and optimistic that it's done that. Um, but the, the push right is it, there's always a, a pretty strong back and forth, as you know, in this region and what's happening in Brazil, it's hard to, it's hard to even put such a kind of handle on that right now. But certainly the, the movements around Mariela and the assassination mm-hmm. of, of some of these leaders has sparked, uh, indignation and, and a lot of organizing. Wow. No, that, that's, that's that, that's been the first thing to show, like a political pulse in Brazil where you describe it, I think maybe less as a shift, right. And more of all, it's just like a collapse of traditional politics and despair. Yeah. The way I've been reading it, which I know is different than what's happened in Chile and Argentina, but it seems like it's provoking similar responses. Yeah. I think I, at least from what I can sense, I'm, I'm only in Argentina most of the time right now, but from, from what's happening here, there's just a ton of mobilization happening at the universities in, in the cities with the CGT, which is the main workers 
organization. There's just a lot of activity and one that's really reaching out to feminists in a, in a, in a real way and being led by feminists, which wasn't the case, you know, in the sixties and seventies. Now, how did you come to know about this story? I mean, maybe give us a little bit of background. Like, so you're, you're in Argentina. I assume you're there, uh, uh, doing research. Was this what you was your primary area of research when you went down there? How did you come to see this story? Because it really is remarkable, this idea of self-organization and self-activity uh, from a feminist perspective, basically saving soccer um, in these three soccer mad countries. <laughs> uh, so how, how did you come to know about this story? Uh, well, I'm an historian, so I came to do a lot of research. I have, I'm almost done with a book with Josh Nadel on, on the history of women's soccer in Latin America. So I came with wow. kind of a historical perspective and thinking, okay, I'm going to research the Argentine women that appeared in this non-FIFA World Cup in 1971 in Mexico. And it was not recognized by FIFA, and there was a whole team of Argentine women that that went to Mexico. And so I wanted to interview them and talk about that event because it's to date one of those 1971, they fill a Stadio Azteca with a hundred thousand people. So okay. I was super curious. I know I was super curious to do that, but then I got here and I said to myself, you know, wait, the Copa's coming. I've been working for a long time with the women in the Chilean union. What's Argentina doing? And I reached mm-hmm. out to the goalkeeper, who's Gabby Garton, who's a student, a, a master's student in sociology, and said, hey, can I come to a training? Can I can I see what you guys are up to? And so I went to AFA headquarters uh, to watch them train, and nobody else was there. And it was just remarkable. And I just started talking to them, and it was just, it was just painful what they were willing to do to wear the Argentine jersey, what they were willing to sacrifice in their own lives and how just being here in Argentina, there's no coverage. Even today, I looked for something. Today, Argentina plays Venezuela, nothing. And uh, it was just really moving to me what they were willing to do. And, and And then I got to know like, oh, and look, look at all this organizing that they've been doing. And in, in doing, you're interviewing folks. Um, how open are people being with you? And is there any fear of danger or backlash the way political athletes in this country um, invariably are concerned about those issues when they speak to researchers, historians, reporters about struggle and using sports as a platform for struggle? I think it's even worse. I mean, in the article I call collective, something like collective action is a politics of necessity for them. Basically, any coach can cut them without any without any backlash. It's not like Carlos Tevez; he gets left off the Argentine national team, and it sparks a national debate. Nobody notices. So, so, so the the possibility to to have real serious career implications is omnipresent. And some of them, I can't believe that they're brave enough to want to be in the article some of the time. I, I, I'm like, aren't, aren't you sure? Do you want me to keep you anonymous? And they say, no, no, this is too much. You know, put it in. Um, the biggest players, it, it's it's harder because they they have more of a public image. A lot of them play in the NWSL. Uh, some play in as far as South Korea. So they, they have kind of professional um, advice that they're getting. And so they're a little bit more closed in terms of wanting their name. They're not closed personally. Like they'll, mm-hmm. they'd love to tell you because they've suffered, but they're a little bit more closed on going on record. 
Wow. And can you telescope anything at all for us? Like, can you tell us where you think this is going to go? Like, what you think this is going to look like in three, four, five years? If you think this is going to have staying power, if you think we're at the start of something, or if you think this is something that's going to be just a huge issue now, but maybe get crushed, where do you see this in the next uh, period? I think the next step is a regional association. Right now, there's no regional association. And so what we've proposed, like because I've been writing grants with them over the last couple of months, is a big forum for Comebol women players in August in Chile. So we're hoping to build on the momentum of what's happening now and then try to get them together because they have no time at the Copa. Mm-hmm. Their schedules are so tight and the funds are so limited that once they're eliminated, they have to immediately leave. So even when we tried to like set up a coffee or, you know, cookies, or something, it was, it was nearly impossible. So we're hoping in August to uh, set something up like that. And I think the women, especially uh, in Brazil, Argentina, Chile, but also Colombia, which has a new women's league. And I didn't get to talk about them in the article because there was just no space but uh, the Colombian Women's League has been incredible and that their performance in the tournament absolutely is a reflection of how successful that's been in the first year. So I think that's really heartening. And the next step, I think, is to create real structures is, so that there's problem solving sharing. There's a way in which there's a public call to action, but there's also a way in which all of this activity gets focused and institutionalized in a certain sense. Wow. Uh, Brenda, is there anything I'm missing in terms of this story? I think how great the tournament's been. I mm. think. Talk, talk to us about that. <laughs> it's been fantastic. So the one, the one thing is I wrote that article and I said, oh, yeah, it has like a political bent to it. But oh, my gosh, it's had this amazing sporting event. It's a really high scoring tournament that averages like four goals per game. It's pretty unpredictable. There's been some amazing performances like Catalina Usme from Colombia, who's just tearing it up, tearing it up. Also, Andresinha from Brazil. She plays for the Portland Thorns. So a lot of these people that are playing right now, probably your listeners, are able to see them. You know, Stephanie uh, Banini from Argentina. She plays for Washington Spirit. So a lot of these these players have just come out and they're excited and it's evident on the field. There's been a couple on field protests mm-hmm. um, and and that's been exciting and interesting and a story to see the Argentine players do this kind of um, gesture after they make a goal, which is kind of cupping their ears like like I can't hear you. I can't I can't hear what you, you know, the love that I should be getting right now. <laughs> like an older gesture that goes back from from men's play so there's a lot of really creative stuff on the field and it's been a beautiful tournament and the final stages are happening right now it starts uh this coming week so i think i think the one thing we've missed is that man have they shown up Mm mm-hmm that's fantastic. No, and that's a great note to end on. Although every time we interview somebody on this show, we end on this note. As you're doing this work, Brenda, um, as you're going back to wherever the lab is and typing up interviews and doing research and all the rest of it, uh, what music are you listening to? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, what music? I, you know, it's hard for me to write with anything that has lyrics. So yeah, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, 
Have you? Are you oh, there? Yeah. Okay, so I have a very tough time like, unless I know the song "Cold," so the lyrics are an irrelevancy to me. I cannot write anything if lyrics are in the house. Yeah, so so pretty much I've been doing Coltrane. Ooh. Yeah, and so a lot, lot of that, um, and other types of jazz stuff, and occasionally classical, because I am a mess when it comes to listening to lyrics. I'm so compelled. Well, s- since soccer in Brazil, Chile, and Argentina for these incredibly brave women have taken giant steps recently, Coltrane could not be more appropriate. Sorry about that. Fair. I couldn't. No, I agree. Agree. I had to go with some Coltrane joke. I. We'll stop now. Uh, Brenda, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm so glad you wrote this article. It's a tremendous chapter in the literature of sports and politics. Thank you. And now I've got some choice words titled, Eric Reed is not for sale. Okay, look, the news was upsetting, yet neither shocking nor surprising. Free agent NFL safety Eric Reed had been brought in for a workout with the Cincinnati Bengals, and everything was looking fine and dandy, up until team owner Mike Brown asked him for a commitment that he would no longer take a knee or otherwise protest during the national anthem. Eric Reed is a San Francisco 49er, during the 2016 season, the season before last, was the first person to kneel alongside team quarterback Colin Kaepernick. He continued this practice along with 49er teammates throughout 2017. Now, Reed had already publicly made clear that he was considering to cease protesting with the new season, looking at other methods to raise awareness about racial inequity. But when Mike Brown wanted an extra assurance Reed made it clear that his humanity was not for sale. Eric Reed has been so much more than an athlete who protested during the anthem. He wrote an op-ed for the New York Times in September 2017 in defense of Kaepernick, decrying his blackballing, quote-unquote, from the league. He wrote this knowing that he would be a free agent following the season and all too aware of what this statement could do to his own future employment. I want to read a quick section from that op-ed, and it's really good. He wrote, Anybody who has a basic knowledge of football knows that Kaepernick's unemployment has nothing to do with his performance on the field. It's a shame that the league has turned its back on a man who has done only good. I'm aware that my involvement in this movement means that my career may face the same outcome as Collins. But to quote the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a time comes when silence is betrayal, and I choose not to betray those who are being oppressed, end quote. That's not all Eric Reed did last year. In December, he also publicly quit the Players Coalition, the negotiating organization of players who were sitting down with team owners to speak about the protests and attempt to extract financial contributions for various causes related to criminal justice reform. Reed went public to say that he was told by people in the Players Coalition that he needed to stop protesting if monetary contributions were going to be made. He called the ownership offer a charade, as well as a publicity stunt. 
He also formally objected to Kaepernick being shut out of the negotiations. Reed has in addition been unafraid to call out ownership on social media for why he remains unsigned today, writing, GMs aren't the holdup, it's ownership. People who know football know who can play. People who know me know my character. Like his friend Kaepernick, it is Reed's lack of willingness to negotiate his personhood and principles that is vital to understanding why owners fear what he may do. And I gotta say, there's particular irony in the fear of protest expressed by Mike Brown, given the Bengals' present and past history of signing players with criminal histories, as well as histories of violence against women. Not surprisingly, Reed has been a fixture of Kaepernick's Know Your Rights camps, and I interviewed Reed at one of those camps last year that was staged in Chicago. He said to me, I want to show these kids that we care, that there are people that want to help them succeed in life, and that we are here to help. Reed also expressed that the previous 2016 season had been a whirlwind, saying, I've learned a lot about political athletes in the last year, and it's helped me realize that what I'm doing, what Colin is doing, isn't new. It's now our turn to step up to the plate. Our goal was to open up the conversation, and we accomplished that goal. Eric Reed is still opening up the conversation, and now it's about something far more dangerous to the NFL. It's a conversation about their moral compass and why they are so terrified of free speech and trying to have a conversation about the gap between what this country claims to represent and the realities of daily life for black Americans. They fear Eric Reed because he is offering only his playing ability to NFL teams, not his politics and not his personhood. This episode of the Edge of Sports podcast is brought to you by The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe to get the latest news and views that are about the politics of resistance and dissent in a time where we need it. The Nation has been doing this for 150 years, and I don't think its work has ever been more important. Uh, This week, if you actually subscribe to The Nation online, you get to read articles like Donna Minkowitz on domestic far-right candidates, Michael Massing on Martin Luther and Trump, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, and David Kleon, and I love this article, on how progressives should think about Russia collusion and the entire investigation uh, that's going on, the Mueller investigation. People should check that out. Also, there's a huge books and arts section uh, that includes so many interesting things like Stephen Hahn on a new book about radical reconstruction, Barry Schwabsky on Joan Jonas, Brianna Younger on Young Fathers. People have to check this stuff out. It's really good. You get a ton of articles online for free, but when you subscribe, you get really into the deep stuff, and it's some of the best journalism going right now. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you support the continued existence of this podcast. And now, back to Edge of Sports. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. This week, the Just Stand Up Award goes to the triple-double machine, Russell Westbrook. But not because he just finished his second consecutive season averaging a triple-double, something nobody has done since the NBA started tracking assists, not even the big O, Oscar Robertson himself. 
But Russell Westbrook wins the Just Stand Up Award for standing with the thousands of teachers in Oklahoma who are on strike, statewide strike in one of the reddest states in this country, part of the red state revolt that we've seen in places like Kentucky and West Virginia. And it's a revolt of teachers. And in Oklahoma, this strike is particularly understandable because they are the lowest paid teachers in the country. And the students in Oklahoma who go to public schools, they suffer from a lack of the most basic resources. And Russell Westbrook decided that he was going to use his stature as the most famous athlete in the state, the reigning MVP himself. He was going to stand with these teachers. This is what he said. He said, education is very, very important to me. The teachers are standing up for something that they obviously believe in, and that's helping the kids get a better education. Obviously, them getting paid more. More funding for the schools is very, very important. I'm definitely all in for that because I believe education is key for a lot of things going on in society, end quote. It's that part where he says, I'm definitely all in for that. That is a statement of solidarity on an issue in a state where you have to think that standing up means so much to those who are sitting out. So thank you so much to Russell Westbrook and shout out to Etan Thomas's mom, who is a longtime Oklahoma teacher and has been walking the picket line with those teachers as well. Um, at the time that we're recording this podcast, it looks like the strike is winding down. However it ended, I hope the teachers in Oklahoma know that they inspired people well beyond their state's borders. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award Sit your ass down. breaks my heart, but it goes to an organization that we've had a lot of praise for on this podcast, and it's the Seattle Seahawks. See, the Seahawks had plans to bring in Colin Kaepernick for a workout as they looked for a backup to Russell Wilson. But they postponed the meeting when Kaepernick said he did not know what his plans would be for off-field activism or anthem protests. Now, that word I used, postponed, was a word that came out of the Seahawks organization. By the next morning, and I mean like by 7 a.m. Eastern time, which I guess is like 4 a.m. Seattle time, they'd already signed a backup to Russell Wilson. Somebody named Stephen Morris, who was the quarterback at Washington, uh, the University of Washington, UW. Now, I understand the local appeal of that, but this is something that is really distressing. This idea that they, like the Cincinnati Bengals and Eric Reed would be looking at the anthem issue as something that becomes a red line in the sand about whether or not they will actually offer employment. It's an attack on free speech, it's an attack on the collective bargaining agreement, uh, and it's an attack on union rights, and every player, black, white, what have you, should be standing with Colin Kaepernick, should be standing with Eric Reed. These questions are completely inappropriate for a team to throw down with. Stand with them because we're standing for all of our ability to dissent. I'll never forget one of the speakers at this rally for Colin Kaepernick in front of NFL headquarters. What they said was, it was a woman named Hazel Dukes who'd been in the NAACP for like 70 years. 70 years, seriously. That's how long she's been in the struggle. And she said, we stand with Colin Kaepernick because he has stood with us. And it's so important to stand with them now. Not because whether he has a job or whether Eric Reed has a job should necessarily be the forefront of our minds or of our struggle, but we have to understand the ripple effect that it has culturally if the NFL is able to deny them work just for their political beliefs, especially at this moment in history. 
And that Just Sit Your Ass Down award to the Seattle Seahawks and their ownership and management team that was trying to put Colin Kaepernick's personhood for sale. And Kaepernick said it is not for sale. That's our Kaepernick watch this week as well. We hope he stands strong. We always stand with him because like Hazel Duke said, he has stood with us. We'll be back right after this. Hey, everybody. If you like the Edge of Sports podcast, please support the Edge of Sports podcast. Go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Become a patron of the site. Get all kinds of extras that we're still working through. And just allow us to do the kind of work that we're continuing to do each and every week. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Become an Edge of Sports sustainer today. And now, back to the show. And now it is the annual, much-awaited part of the show where I give my NBA playoff predictions, my favorite part of the sports calendar, as well as I'm going to look back at what I said at the start of this NBA season, and let's see what happened. Okay, so first and foremost, let me do my end-of-the-year awards before we get into the playoffs, because everybody's into those end-of-the-year awards, because that's just about the regular season, and the playoffs will cloud our minds. And we don't want our minds clouded, ladies and gents. So first and foremost, MVP. At the start of the season, I predicted that Kawhi Leonard would win this award in leading the Spurs. Uh, That proved to be hellaciously off because of Kawhi Leonard being injured for much of this season. The person who should and will win this award is James Harden, uh, the combo guard for the Houston Rockets. They won 65 games. He led the league in scoring. LeBron James is a close second, but the MVP this year is James Harden. Those 65 wins just loom too large for me in comparison to LeBron winning 51 with the Cavs in a very depleted Eastern Conference and ending as a number four seed. Uh, The second award, Rookie of the Year. At the start of the year, I picked Ben Simmons, the Six foot ten athletic Marvel point guard for the Philadelphia 76ers. The 76ers somehow won 50 games this year, uh, 50 plus games this year. So I picked Simmons at the start. Uh, I don't think anybody saw Donovan Mitchell of the Utah Jazz being as good as he was, but my goodness, uh, as great as Donovan Mitchell was, this goes to Ben Simmons. Now, there's a lot of debate about this award. Because some people say Ben Simmons shouldn't be considered a rookie since he was on the team last year but did not play. And he traveled with the team and was coached by the team. Look, the rules are the rules. A rookie is a rookie. If you don't play, you're a rookie. If they want to change the rules, that's one thing. But as long as the rules are the rules, there's no question to me that Ben Simmons, who ended the year averaging about 16 points, 8 boards, and 8 assists, I mean, that, that is pretty remarkable. For somebody who's just out of the teenage years. So Ben Simmons, Rookie of the Year. I picked it at the start of the year. I pick it at the finish of the year. He is going to and should win this award. Coach of the Year. I do believe at the start of the year I picked Greg Popovich to win Coach of the Year. Part of my Kawhi Leonard amazingness. Now, interestingly, I think Greg Popovich has had one of his great years as a coach. Leading this team back to the playoffs even without Kawhi Leonard. But my coach of the year this year is I'm looking for somebody who was forced to adjust 
and made things actually happen. And I'm going to go with Quinn Snyder of the Utah Jazz. They lost their best player in Gordon Hayward. They lost their best scorer, arguably, in Rodney Hood. And somehow they're in the middle of the playoffs. They're, I believe, the number five seed. They're the number five seed in the West. Uh, and, and I don't know how the Utah Jazz were able to hold it together in that competitive conference. But I'll go with Quinn Snyder as my coach of the year. I just think losing Hayward in particular it was a body blow to that team. This idea that, oh, we're a small market. We can't keep our players. And then sure enough, they were able to come back and make the playoffs. So big shout out to them. Most improved player, I believe at the start of the year, I picked Otto Porter, small forward for the Washington Wizards. That didn't quite happen. Uh, Although Otto did have a very solid year, everybody knows who the most improved player is going to be. It's the easiest award to pick. It's going to be Victor Oladipo, who went to the Indiana Pacers after a pretty awful season alongside Russell Westbrook on the Oklahoma City Thunder, and Victor Oladipo became an all-star, first option, awesome player on the Pacers team, and the Pacers team are a surprise uh, playoff squad finishing with with the fifth-best record in the Eastern Conference. So that's the award roundup. Now let's go to these matchups. Let's start in the Eastern Conference. Number one versus number eight, the Toronto Raptors against your Washington Wizards. Let's start it off getting spicy. I like the number eight seed Wizards to beat the Toronto Raptors in seven games. Love the Wizards with John Wall back in the saddle. Boston versus Milwaukee, two versus seven. Boston does not have Kyrie Irving. So I like the seven seed, Milwaukee, led by Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, the man born in Athens, Greece, family of Nigerian immigrants. I love Giannis, and I do believe that uh, Milwaukee will beat Boston. So I have the eight seed beating the one seed and the seven seed beating the two seed. Then we've got Philadelphia against Miami, the three seed against the six seed. I like the six seed. I like the Miami Heat in seven games. I think Philadelphia is too green. I like Eric Spolstra as a coach. Um, I like their playoff experience. We're going with Miami. So I have the eight, seven, and six seed winning. And finally, Cleveland versus Indiana. I got Cleveland in the number four seed beating Indiana, the fifth seed, pretty easily in five games. LeBron James moves on and... LeBron James, as I predicted, pretty easy prediction at the start of the season. The Cavs will make the NBA Finals. In the West, that's a pretty wild Eastern prediction, though. I got eight beating one, seven beating two, six beating three. Man, let's see if that happens. Okay, in the West, we got Houston versus Minnesota. Uh, The Houston Rockets, they won 65 games. Minnesota, they're very green. I love Jimmy Butler on Minnesota. I think he squeezes one, maybe two wins out of this team. But a lot of people don't know, Minnesota is has the worst defensive efficiency of any team that's in the playoffs. And all Houston is about is offense. So I like Houston in five games there. Uh, the Warriors versus the Spurs. Now this is very interesting because uh, the Warriors have uh, Steph Curry on the shelf with an injury. Um, they should work him back in during the playoffs. But first they got to get through the Spurs. And I don't know, man. The Spurs are spicy, but I'll go with the Warriors in six games. I'm not going to pull that particular trigger at this point. Can't do it. Can't do it. Uh, We got what I think is going to be the best opening round series, believe it or not, the Trailblazers against the New Orleans Pelicans. This is an interesting star player versus star player and positionality and how you value it. Do you like Damian Lillard, uh, point guard for the Blazers, or do you like Anthony Davis? the center for the Pelicans, who will come out on top in this series. 
I'll go with Dame Dollar. I'll go with Dame Diddy. I'll go with Dame. And I like I like Portland to beat the Pelicans in seven games. And then we got OKC versus Utah. You know, OKC, Westbrook, Paul George, Carmelo Anthony against it, the Utah Jazz team that doesn't have a really a primary scorer other than a rookie, Donovan Mitchell. That makes it pretty tough if your rookie's your primary scorer in the playoffs. I like the Thunder in six games, but a great season by these Utah Jazz. Who do I like coming out of the West? Um, I like the Houston Rockets. I think that they match the Warriors body blow for body blow, and we get a Houston Rockets uh, versus uh, Cleveland Cavs final with Chris Paul being the difference maker and the Houston Rockets winning your NBA championship. Boom! I love the NBA playoffs. Them's my picks. Well, thank you to everybody for making this show what it was this week. Thank you so much to my producer David Tigaboo. Thank you to Brenda Elsie for joining us to talk about your remarkable article. People can get a link to that article in the description of this podcast. And if you like the podcast, please subscribe. Please tell a friend. Please make a rating. Please leave a little comment. All that stuff makes a huge difference to the work that we are trying to do. And please donate to the podcast at patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. It makes a huge difference to what we're doing when you financially support the work. Uh, For everybody out there listening, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.